on today's episode of Insight and Renown. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. Have you ever wondered where we came from and where we might be going? Well, this podcast is here to answer those questions, at least in the context of the Game of Thrones living card game. Welcome to Insight and Renown. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. This is episode 5 of Insight and Renown, where today we'll be talking about economy. Now, this is going to be a little bit different from previous podcasts. Uh, Previous ones have focused a little bit more on, hey, look at these crazy old cards. Maybe we'll see some of this again in the future. Whereas this will just be more of a comparative sort of look at the way resources were handled in first edition, look at how they've been handled in second edition, and try to figure out exactly what the design philosophy of economy will be going forward in second edition. So a couple of notes right off the bat. Uh, Game of Thrones has always been unique in the uh, plot deck aspect, since so much of your gold, your resources, comes from the plot and not necessarily finding your resources in your deck and playing them. Economy has always been slightly different in Game of Thrones than from other card games, and that hasn't changed between 1st edition and 2nd edition, except they've increased the gold a very slight amount. Uh, Equivalent plots in 1st edition would maybe have one less gold than the 2nd edition counterpart. So even though there is a bit of a difference there, we're not going to be focusing on that. This will be about the resources that you have to include in your main deck that you have to find in order to accelerate your resource base. So let's take a look at the very first set, Westeros Edition, back from 2002, and see what they have in common with 2nd Edition and what they had uh, separate. So first off the bat, the uh, House Stark, and remember there was only House Stark, House Lannister, and House Baratheon at that point. House Stark got a one-cost, one-strength character with a power icon, that could kneel in the marshalling phase to lower the cost of the next character you played that phase by one. So, the equivalent of what we have in 2nd edition, but Lannister and Baratheon didn't uh, receive the same card. This was just for House Stark at this point. Much, much later on in the game in 5 Kings edition, the cycle was completed. Every one of the six houses at that point did get a one-cost, one-strength reducer with a power icon, but uh, not in the first set. That was just for House Stark. Uh, Each house did receive a zero-cost location that was in-house, that was limited and could kneel to lower the cost of the next card of that affiliation that you played that phase by one. Uh, Winterfell Heart Tree for Stark, for example. And we did have the Rose Road, which was exactly the same as it is now. A neutral location, non-unique, limited, plus one gold. In addition to that, each house also had an in-house plus one gold card. Exactly the same text as the Rose Road, it just had the uh, Baratheon or Stark or Lannister affiliation to go along with that. They also had a card called the Sea Road, which was just the exact same as the Rose Road. They just figured maybe people want to play a lot more limited locations, we'll give them more options. There was no King's Road at this point. There was no uh, sacrifice to reduce the cost of the next card by three. There would be eventually. In Ice and Fire Edition, they came out with a card called King's Hall. As the exact same text of the King's Road, uh, the notable exception is that it costs zero instead of one. So a far better accelerator. Um, There was generally no reason not to run three copies of King's Hall as soon as it was legal. In addition, in the first set, each house also got a two-cost in-house reducer that was also limited, but could kneel to lower the cost of the next character by two. So when you compare that to something like Winterfell Heart Tree, that has an effect right when it comes out into play. As soon as you play it, you can kneel it and gain one resource that turn effectively. Uh, The two-cost reducers would pay for themselves the first turn. So you'd play it, you'd pay two, and then you could save two off the next character that you played but you haven't actually gained any uh, resource benefit at this point. You've still paid what the total cost of the character would be. You've just also got this two-cost location in play now, which means going forward, every time you use it, 
you'll be increasing your resource advantage by two. So a better long-term benefit than the zero-cost reducers, but uh, it doesn't have the same immediate effect. Also in the first couple of sets, we received a few cards that were keyed around traits rather than houses. Uh, these were all two-cost neutral locations. Uh, there's the turning grounds, which you can kneel to lower the cost of the next knight character you played by two. And it also says you can ignore the out-of-house gold penalty if that character's from another house. Uh, remember, in first edition, you could play with characters from any house regardless of what house you were actually using. You just had to pay an extra two gold if they didn't match your house affiliation. So a card like Turning Grounds would allow you to build a knight deck and include a bunch of out-of-house knights and not have to worry about paying that extra penalty. There's an equivalent card called Maester's Turret. Uh, it's exactly the same text, but it works on maesters instead of knights. And there's another location released in the next set called Mountains of the Moon. Uh, again, it's a two-cost neutral location. It just says that the cost for you to play clansman characters is lowered by one. You don't have to kneel the location to use that, so since it's non-unique, once you had three of these out, every single Klansman character you played was minus three. At the time, it's also worth mentioning that Klansmen were not based out of Lannister. All the Klansman characters that were available were neutral cards. These sort of trait-related reducers did see some play, but uh, not a lot at the higher level of competitions as far as I understand. The out-of-house knights or maesters or clansmen characters were never powerful enough to justify the extra space in your deck. You'd be far better off just playing with the equivalently good characters that are already in your house. We also received a cycle of events, one for each house, that would reduce the cost of characters from that house that turn, uh, although they did act slightly differently. The first card is To the Wolf Banner, which allows you to kneel one of your star characters to reduce the cost of the next star character you play that phase to zero, limit one per round. This was an excellent card. Um, I'm not sure if that's immediately obvious, but it does allow you to set up a one-cost character, first turn, kneel them, and play an eight-cost character for free. When you combine that with the fact that Stark had one of the best eight-cost armies in the game, the Great Host, uh, there were some pretty neat things you could do, somewhat dependent on your draw, but uh, a very powerful card regardless. Lannister's event was called To the Lion Banner, unsurprisingly. It says, Marshalling, lower the cost of each Lannister character you play this phase by one, limit one per round. So it doesn't have the huge impact of the Wolf Banner, but it does affect every single character you play that phase that has a Lannister affiliation. So if you've got the draw to support it, and you're playing a sort of weenie rush deck, this could give you a huge economic advantage. The card that Baratheon received was not called to the Stag Banner for some reason. It was called Heed the Call. This event says, Marshalling, lower the cost of the next Baratheon character you play this phase by two. Limit one per round. Yeah, not particularly impactful. It saves you two, but it costs you a card as well. So, uh, didn't see much play, wasn't really worth it. We've seen something along these lines already in 2nd edition. We've seen Tithe, the uh, neutral event that allows you to kneel a neutral character to add two gold to your gold pool. And let's state definitively for the record while we're here that you cannot use an opponent's character to pay for that event. We've also seen Out of Martell in Doran's name. This is the uh, card that allows you to kneel your faction card to gain one gold for each plot in your use pile. Not very effective on the first couple of turns, but potentially very impactful on turns 4, 5, and 6. And the last thing that must be mentioned from the first set of the CCG is a cycle of locations known as the Streets. This is the Street of Seal, the Street of Sisters, and Shadow Black Lane. Now that might sound familiar to those of you who have played 2nd edition and not 1st edition, but rest assured these cards were wildly different. Each of them says, Marshalling, Kneel to lower the cost of the next character with a particular combat icon, you play this phase by one. Uh, so Street of Steel was for military characters, Sisters was for power icon characters, and Shadow Black Lane was for intrigue icon characters. Those were all zero cost, and you may not have noticed that I didn't say limited. 
And to those of you who only played the LCG of first edition, I also didn't say limit one per deck. So yeah, right out of the bat, you could play three copies of Street of Steel, three copies of Street of Sisters, and three copies of Shadow Black Lane in your deck. And unless your deck was insanely focused on only one or two icons, there was no reason not to play all nine of these. They hugely impacted your setup. All of them were zero cost, if I didn't mention that earlier. All of them were non-limited, and if you got enough of them, you could easily get a five, six, seven card drop on setup and be hugely economically advantaged for the remainder of the game. When you combine these cards with a promo that came out uh, a couple years into the game called King's Landing, things got really out of hand. King's Landing said uh, it was a three-cost, unique location that allowed you to draw a card every time you played a location. So even if you were thinking, okay, well, that's great economic advantage, but what if you draw that card later on instead of something useful? Well, if you're playing King's Landing, you get to play that card and get something useful as well. Oh, and by the way, for LCG players, this was before they instituted the draw cap. Yeah, you could play all nine of these cards on the same turn as King's Landing and draw nine cards. This, in fact, if memory serves, was the card that made it necessary to institute the draw cap. Uh, the, I believe it was called the 10-10 ruling. It came out on October 10th of that year. Uh, that was their stopgap when they finally realized that draw was getting out of control. They limited you to three cards outside of the draw phase. Because, again, as you probably are aware, second edition players, there was no reserve value in first edition. Any card you drew, you just kept. I've heard stories of players getting Eric Lang, the uh, designer of the card game at that point, to sign their copy of King's Landing with the words, I'm so very, very sorry. So what did the economy of a particular deck back in the day look like at this point? Well, I should say that I wasn't really playing competitively at that point. Uh, I was really more of a casual player until several years into the game. But um, if you didn't have three copies of Street of Steel, Street of Sisters, and Shadow Black Lane, which, by the way, I should mention, were all rare cards from the first set of the CCG, you were at a huge disadvantage, because that would be your first nine cards in any deck, for the most part. Uh, I, I know that in the first, the very first set, uh, Stark Murder was one of the more popular decks, where it would just play characters with military icons, just played high-claim plots, and just murdered the opponent's board and won on unopposed power. But uh, after the game evolved, um, it's also worth mentioning that right in the, after the first set came out, the, uh, the minimum deck size was 40 cards, not 60. So any of these aggro decks had a huge advantage in that they could just pare their deck down to the most efficient 40 cards, wreck the opponent's face, and, again, win on unopposed power. doesn't really matter if you're very good at intrigue or power if everyone on the other side of the table is dead. So after the game evolved past that point where we were focused on that just kill-everything mentality, once decks became a bit more varied, three copies of each of the streets was pretty much a necessity competitively. As far as those events, to the best of my knowledge, to the Wolf Banner was the only one that really saw a lot of play. The traded locations, again, people tried to make decks around them, but they weren't really competitive at the higher levels. The two-cost reduced-by-two locations, again, they were just too expensive. They didn't give you an immediate benefit, unlike the streets, unlike the in-house reducers, unlike King's Hall. They didn't see a lot of play competitively. You would see the in-house zero-cost reducers, and occasionally the Euros Road or the in-house plus-one gold, depending on how many uh, resource cards you wanted to put into your deck. But the focus of any deck, as far as resource goes, were the streets, the in-house reducers, and the King's Hall. So going back over that list of cards, it uh, occurs to me that FFG kind of shot themselves in the foot after the first couple of sets, because where the hell do you take resources after that opening? You've already got all these non-limited cards, you've already got, by I think it was the third or fourth set, you've got that King's Hall for that huge immediate advantage. After that, how do you design new resources and make it so people actually want to put them in their decks? 
Well, they had to get a little creative. Um, and first of all, let's, let's see how they took a look at Lannister, as they decided that Lannister makes gold was going to be one of their themes. So, in the first set, instead of that uh, recruiter character, the one-cost reducer character, Lannister got a Lannisport moneylender, which was very similar to the second edition version. It's a one-cost, one-strength, intrigue icon character that gives plus one gold. Unlike the equivalent in second edition, this again lacks the limited keyword. I think over the entire course of the uh, CCG and the LCG of first edition, Lannister was the only house to get characters with a printed gold modifier on them. This was something they reserved just for that house. They were also the only house to get a card like Lannisport Treasury. This was a two-cost, non-unique location in-house that was limited and gave you plus two gold. This had the same resource disadvantage problems as the two-cost reducers from the first set, except magnified a little, because when you pay the two gold to play this card, you're not getting any benefit that turn. That two gold is just gone. On the next turn, you'll get two gold back from it, meaning at that point you've broken even, except you're down one card for having played it, and it's not until the turn after that that you're actually starting to make anything back on it. So not particularly effective. Later on in the Ice and Fire edition, they got some interesting cards. They had a one-cost attachment called Goldsmith. This was an attachment that would go on any of your characters and just has the text plus two gold. There were a few downsides, of course. This was an attachment, which in first edition meant not only could you not play this on setup, it was considered basically terminal. If the character it was on died, this went away as well. There are also a whole bunch of really easy ways to deal with attachments, even out of the first set. I believe it was in the first set they had a card called Mummer's Trick or Mummer's Farce that uh, you, could, you would discard the top card off your deck for each attachment in play to discard all of those attachments. And since discarding cards off the top of your own deck, as we discussed in a previous podcast, isn't that much of a cost, it was a very, very easy way to deal with any problem attachments. So even though this has a really good resource advantage, it was just so vulnerable that while it may have seen a little bit of play, it wasn't all that effective. In the same set, they got a copy of Tywin Lannister that uh, is very similar to the second edition version. Uh, it was five cost, four strength, all three icons, but doesn't have renown, doesn't get plus one strength for each gold in your gold pool, but does still give you the plus two gold. A five cost character though really had to be impactful at that point in the game. Uh, adding that plus two gold was very useful, but not really good enough. He didn't impact the board enough, just by able, being able to contribute to strength to one challenge every turn. So there were, there were better options at the five cost slot. Or more likely, you just wouldn't play any five cost characters. They also got a card called Dangerous Mines. This was a zero cost in-house location, non-limited, that says marshalling, kneel to lower the cost of the next card you play this phase by one, your house loses one power. So very, very effective from a resource advantage point of view. It's zero cost, it's non-limited, it lowers the cost of whatever the next card you play that phase by one. And in a vacuum, I'd almost consider playing this. I'd almost consider putting it in a second edition deck. Um, the thing is, there were already so many good resource cards at this point that having to lose a power every time you triggered this was just too high a cost. Other resource cards that you could use may not have been as versatile, but it wouldn't have, have that cost associated with it. And lastly, on our Lannister tangents, they also received a card called Heavy Taxes. This is a zero-cost attachment that goes on a location you control and adds one to your income. Not bad, but again, the fact that you couldn't play attachments on setup was a bit of a detriment to this card's versatility. So those are some of the interesting ways that they tried to differentiate economy for House Lannister. Now I want to take a look at how they tried to apply their creativity going forward to make people want to play the new cards as opposed to the streets. So, in order that they appeared in the card game, we've got uh, Street of Silk. This was reprinted in the LCG, but for those of you not aware, it says zero cost, non-unique. After you play Street of Silk, discard one of your locations from play, cannot be saved. Marshalling, kneel to lower the cost of the next unique character you play this phase by two. 
Uh, again, for you LCG players, you'll note that this does not say limit one per deck, so you could play multiples of them. This card is wonderful for setup, as you don't have to uh, activate that discard one of your locations text on setup. So apart from that downside, the only other downside is that it has to be a unique character that you, you reduce. Apart from that, it's non-limited, it's zero cost, and it immediately gives you a resource benefit of two, which is pretty significant. Continuing this sort of theme of non-limited economy but with a downside, I want to take a look at a couple of cards from the Throne of Blades expansion. This expansion had a, uh, a minor sub-theme of Dominance Matters, which it uh, really hadn't for a large part of the game at that point. Um, Dominance is a bit more important now in 2nd edition with uh, more of a slow progression towards 15 power, but for a large part of the CCG, you didn't really need to get that uh, slow amassing of power. You'd rather just try to crush your opponent's board position as quickly as possible, giving yourself a window to quickly gain 15 power. Regardless, here are the two cards I wanted to mention. So for the first is Woods of the North. This is a zero-cost Stark location that says, Discard Woods of the North from play if another player wins Dominance. Marshalling, kneel to lower the cost of the next Stark character you play this phase by one. So non-limited economy works on most of the cards in your deck. Uh, just has that downside of you have to keep winning Dominance, or at least tying for Dominance, or you would no longer have this resource. Lannister got something similar. Theirs was a three-cost, non-unique character called the Envoy of Highgarden. It was a three-strength character with an intrigue icon, and again, it would be discarded from play if an opponent wins dominance. But until that happens, it has the text, lower the gold cost for you to play Lannister characters or House Lannister-only events by one. Again, similar to that card from the very first set, this affects every single character you play while that text is active. For some reason, I don't remember this seeing a lot of play in my meta at the time. It may just be that we didn't have many Lannister players at that point, or they just didn't see the value on this, but uh, if you built a deck around that, that would quickly get out of hand. Things are kind of quickly getting out of hand at this point. Um, to be even worth considering putting in a deck, uh, a resource location would have to be non-limited. So FFG tried coming up with more and more new ways of making non-limited economy that still had a downside to varying degrees of success. So there's a card called Small Council Chamber, very similar to the uh, Tourney Grounds location that we have in 2nd edition. Uh, zero cost, non-unique location that you could kneel to lower the gold cost of the next event card you played by one. However, this wasn't as useful in 1st edition because your gold only was around during the marshalling phase. In uh, Not in 1st edition, in CCG, before they introduced the LCG cards. You wouldn't use any gold tokens or anything like that. You'd just count your income at the start of marshalling. Anything you hadn't spent by the end of marshalling was gone. So this was, a, this was a marshalling phase action only, and so many events, because of this restriction, didn't have a cost. So this only affected very few cards, maybe not even ones that you really wanted to run, so it did not see a lot of play. They came up with a card called River Row. This was uh, another neutral, non-unique location, zero cost. It uh, can kneel to lower the cost of the next character you play this phase by one, but it comes into play knelt. So, yes, you're getting that uh, non-limited ability to play it and still play other resources that turn, but you're not able to get the advantage out of it first turn because it's already been knelt. Um, this, again, was one of those cards that in the CCG days did not have the text limit one per deck, but when it was reprinted in the LCG, it gained that text. This... Uh, Again, because it helps your setup, being able to play several zero-cost cards on setup really uh, advances the number of cards you can get in there. That did see a lot of play, as did the first champion card in this podcast, Flea Bottom. This was designed by Greg Atkinson after he won Worlds in 2004. Uh, it has the exact same text as the uh, LCG version, except again, I think the LCG version had a limit one per deck, almost as if they'd learned something from the CCG days. Uh, this was a unique location, zero-cost, doesn't have the limit one per deck in the CTG days. Uh, it says marshalling, kneel fully bottom to lower the cost of the next character you play this phase by two. That character comes into play knelt. 
So again, getting a little creative. Uh, still giving you that huge income bonus that's very similar to Street of Silk, but instead of having to discard a location, you're just not able to use the character that turn because, again, they've come into play Nelt. Now, those last few you'll notice were all neutral. Um, they did want to start to try to keep things within houses again, so they came up with a few different cycles of cards for each house that would have uh, similar text based on the theme of the set that they were in. So, for example, in the Reign of Kings set of the CCG, they were really focusing on playing one house, sort of house purity, if you will. So they each house received a zero-cost in-house reducer that would reduce the cost of the next character of that house by one, but you have to discard the location from play if you ever control the character with a printed house affiliation other than yours. So if you're playing Stark, you could only play the Stark ones. You couldn't play any out-of-house characters. Neutral ones aren't considered to have a house affiliation, so those you were allowed to play. And these were uh, pretty useful locations, since for the most part you weren't really getting that much out of playing characters out of house or playing an alliance, which was the equivalent of bannering back in the day. So this was basically a zero-cost reducer with no downside. Later on in the uh, winter edition of the card game, they came out with a cycle of locations that uh, just were zero-cost, non-limited, reduced the cost of the next character by one. Uh, but they had to text deathbound, which meant if they left play, they hit your dead pile instead of your discard pile. And they had a little raven in the lower left corner of the card that indicated that this card was doomed. For those of you that aren't familiar with the winter edition or winter block of the CCG, this was a very short-lived mechanic. Uh, what they do is basically print overpowered cards, uh, but say they were doomed. They had this little raven in the lower left. If your dead pile ever had five cards with that little raven icon, you immediately lost the game. Either your opponent immediately won if you are playing Joust, or you just weren't included in the remaining rounds of melee. Doomed was probably the least well-received mechanic that FFG ever put into this card game. Um, it did not survive beyond Winter Block. One of the problems with it is, okay, you lose if five Doomed cards are in your dead pile, but what if your deck only includes four Doomed cards? Then you've got four cards that are broken based on their cost-to-efficiency ratio, and there's basically no way your opponent's going to punish you for having played them. Uh, yes, there were a very few, very, very few cards that allowed you to add Doomed cards to your opponent's dead pile, but... Then if your opponent wasn't bothering playing the Doom cards, those were essentially dead cards. All they did was affect your opponent's Doom total, so it was a coin flip whether or not that would actually be of any use to you. It may not be as evident just from looking at the uh, Reducer location, how broken Doomed was. Uh, more of the problem cards were the locations and the characters that stayed on the board and had a huge impact on the board for a relatively low cost, but uh, this was just more in the same vein of that same problem. And the last thing they tried to do for in-house reducers was in the last set of the CCG, Five Kings Edition. This, as you may have guessed from the title, focused around the War of the Five Kings and how each house basically had a king or queen that was leading their house. So there were benefits if you control the king or queen character. So they had a cycle of locations, one for each house, that was zero-cost, non-unique, in-house, limited. They did go back to you using limited, um, because the game text, apart from that, doesn't have the downside. It says marshalling. Kneel this card to lower the cost of the next in-house character you play this phase by one, or by two instead if you control a king or queen character. So it's possible to get that same huge immediate two-resource advantage, but the downside is this is again going back to having a limited keyword, and again only affects in-house characters. That said, if you were building a deck around getting your king or queen out quickly anyway, it was worth including a few of these. Um, if you only have three or four or five limited locations in your deck anyway, it doesn't really matter, and there's not that many limited cards you're going to want to play. So that's sort of my overview. Um, there are a few other types of locations that I want to go back and, and visit briefly. Um, so there's a cycle, for example, 
in the Valyrian edition when they introduced a new type of resource called Influence that I believe I've mentioned on the cast before. As I mentioned, you didn't keep your gold past marshalling, so they decided to come up with a new resource that you could use past marshalling in order to play events. So there was a cycle of one cost locations for each house that acted as a reducer, but also had one influence. So you could choose to either use this to reduce the cost of a, an in-house character, or to pay for an event later on. Let's see, there's a cycle of cards that were exactly the same as the streets, uh, that you would kneel them to lower the cost of the next character with a particular combat icon. You play that phase by one. The difference is that each of them cost one. Yeah, so these came out while the streets were still legal. They hadn't rotated out yet. Uh, they were just trying to give people an option to play with non-limited economy if they didn't own three copies of those rare cards from the first, at that point, out-of-print set. So uh, they did see some play, but not competitively, because if you're playing competitively, you've managed to find three copies of each of those streets. There were also a cycle of non-limited uh, zero-cost reducers based around uh, crests, Crest was something that uh, FFG decided not to bring back in 2nd edition. It was essentially just a glorified trait. Uh, so there are four crests. Uh, let's see, Noble, Learned, Holy, and War. You couldn't really very efficiently build a deck entirely around one of these crests. Uh, it was possible, but rarely was it particularly effective because the characters wouldn't have much synergy beyond that crest. Regardless, there was a location for each of these crests that uh, you would kneel the location to lower the cost of a character with that crest by one. So again, due to the fact that you couldn't really build a deck around this, and therefore you couldn't reliably use that resource every turn, they didn't see a lot of play. There were also a cycle of uh, locations. This time there were only three, because each of them uh, was actually dual house. So for example, there was a card called Narrow Sea. This could be played out of Baratheon or Stark. It was a zero-cost, non-limited, gave you one influence, if you wanted to keep it to pay for events. And it says, Marshalling, you can discard Narrow Sea from play to reduce the cost of the next Stark or Baratheon character you play this phase by two. Sort of a mini King's Hall. Uh, this gives you the same economic advantage as a King's Road in 2nd edition, since you have to pay one to get the benefit of three. Uh, the equivalent is you're getting a benefit of two. But of course, unlike King's Road, this was non-limited. And the last card, or pair of cards I wanted to mention, was two cards that were similar in effect. The first was called the Eyrie. This was, again, in the CCG days. This was in the House of Talons. This was a 5-cost, unique, neutral location, immune to triggered effects. Gives you plus 3 gold and 2 influence. It also has the text, you may start the game with the Irie and any number of its duplicates in play before drawing your setup hand. You cannot place cards during setup. So for players of 1st edition in the LCG days, this might sound familiar to yet another Greg Atkinson card. Uh, apparently Greg really likes producing resource cards with his champion designs. The uh, Knights of the Hollow Hill. This was an agenda that gave you plus 2 gold, plus two initiative, and two influence, which had the same text, you cannot place cards during setup. Both of these cards opened the doors for some very interesting decks. Knights of the Hollow Hill eventually earned a reputation for making those decks too good, so its popularity sort of waxed and waned as different erratas came out, uh, as the meta shifted, but always a very powerful effect. So that's about it for the cards from the uh, CCG in the first edition that I wanted to bring up regarding economy. So what conclusions can we draw from this based on what we've seen so far out of 2nd edition? Well, in 2nd edition, the only non-limited economy we've gotten has been very specific. It's either been a character, which means it's vulnerable to dying, and in fact, as a one-cost character, is probably the character you first want to die, so that economy isn't staying around very long. Or it's uh, tourney grounds, which, again, very specific, only affects one card type in your deck. The other economy we have is either an event, so it's a one-off. You only play it once, you have to get rid of the card 
to get the effect, or it's limited and produces either one resource for you each turn or an immediate resource advantage of two, in the case of the King's Road. Now, of course, it is worth mentioning you can pay the one for, to play the King's Road and not use the resource advantage it gives you that turn. You can save it for a future turn to essentially get a bonus of three that turn, but uh, over the course of the game, it's still the case that you got a resource advantage total of two. You still had to pay the one cost, regardless of when you redeemed the three cost benefit. So, based on the trajectory of economy cards in the CCG and in first edition, and based on the difficulty they had in coming up with new ways to uh, try to interest people in playing the new cards, combined with the way that they've been handling economy so far in second edition, it's fairly clear that FFG has learned a very strong lesson about uh, how efficient you can make an economy card before it starts to break the game. FFG is clearly going to be very careful in evaluating the efficiency of a new resource card before it gets printed, and if it doesn't have that limited text, it's going to have a huge downside. It's either going to be a one-off event, or it's going to only affect a very small subset of cards. Or it's going to be a Lannister card, because they get to break the rules. Alright guys, that's going to do it for this episode of Insight and Renown. I hope you've enjoyed this look at economy cards going back to the uh, very first days of the card game. I want to thank LDub from the Card Game DB forums for the suggestion for this uh, podcast topic. And once again, if you guys want to suggest a topic or you have any questions or comments, please do send me an email at insightandrenown at gmail.com or leave a comment. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, take care guys.